Welcome to Footnotes, the legal podcast for students, by students, exploring the law and all its complexities, one episode at a time. If you're a dedicated listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, we hope you enjoy your time with us. My name's Justin, and I'll be your host for today. Alongside me is Thomas, who is one of the content producers for the Sydney University Law Society Education Committee. Thomas, it's lovely to have you on. Thank you, Justin. This is the second episode in our new podcast series, Why Law?, which we've released throughout the year. We want students from Sydney Law School to listen to this podcast and find some comfort and insight into how to navigate the complexities of student life. Through raising various topics throughout the year, we aim to narrow down on our whys, why we attend Sydney Law School, and to what goals we wish to achieve post-university. In this episode, we are going to focus on imposter syndrome, a phenomenon that impacts students, professors, and industry professionals alike. We're going to be exploring points such as what imposter syndrome means, along with how and why the pressures of law school can exacerbate this phenomenon amongst the student body, how our relationship to imposter syndrome can change over time, particularly in relation to the transition between student and worker in the legal industry, and finally, the solutions to confronting imposter syndrome both within the academic and professional environment. To assist our discussion of imposter syndrome, we're fortunate enough to have a fantastic guest who can provide academic and professional insights into this world. Today, we're joined by Professor Cameron Stewart, one of our own from Sydney Law School. Cameron Stewart is a Professor of Health, Law and Ethics at Sydney Law School. He has degrees in Economics and Law, having completed his PhD here. Throughout his career, he has and continues to conduct research in areas ranging from health law, ethics and human tissue regulation. We just wanted to first ask you what your personal journey is with law. Sure. Okay. Um, so um, I went to high school um, out in the northwestern suburbs. And when I was in high school, one of the things that I wanted to do was um, when I got out as I wanted to do medicine. So um, I was really keen on doing that and I studied hard and, you know, life happens and I didn't get the marks that I wanted. And it was a sort of pretty terrible year 12 for me as it turned out. And, uh, and I did all right, but I didn't get the sort of marks that I needed to get into medicine. So um, I was sort of looking at a gap year or maybe doing something else. And then I decided I'd just go to uni. And my second choice was to go to uh, do law. So I did law at Macquarie uni and, um, and so, yeah, you know, things happen and you just keep going. And um, I actually really got into doing law. And by the time the year had sort of finished, I, was going through the process of transferring to medicine and I'd been through a few stages actually to go to and study it at Newcastle and um, I was getting towards the final stage but I thought you know what no I actually really like doing law so I stayed doing law and uh, I finished there and um, uh, when I f- was in my last couple of years I did a clerkship like many of us that are doing law and I did my clerkship at a place called Phillips Fox which is now called DLA Piper and again you think oh what do I want to do and I thought oh I really wouldn't mind doing criminal law and that sort of stuff but as it turns out, sometimes the skills you, skill sets you have aren't necessarily matched to you, what you think you're going to do, as I've found. Um, so there's lots of happy accidents. I think Bob Ross talks about the painter. So for me, the I found I was pretty good at doing property sort of stuff and uh, that commercial property sort of thing. And I ended up going and doing that. And I was doing, um, got into, got a full, got offered of a full-time job at uh, Phillips Fox when I was leaving. 
Um, then another opportunity came before I moved across, and that was to go and work in the Supreme Court as a, a research officer. And I, again, I don't know how I swung this, but um, I had a terrible, what I thought was the worst interview I've ever had in my life with the chief judge of the equity division, where I looked like an absolute dill. But I ended up getting a job offer to go and work there. And that was great because you just sort of, basically you're freelancing doing research for the eight, at the time, eight judges of the equity division. And um, yeah, and I, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful period of time to be working there. And uh, at towards the end of that, there was one of the judges who I knew, but didn't do a lot of work for. His name was John Brownie. And he was kind of getting close to retirement. He only had about eight months to go on his career. And he didn't feel like he could properly get someone to become an associate for him for that short period of time. So, and he sort of asked me whether I wouldn't mind doing that for another eight months. And so I stayed another eight months on top of the 12 months that I was supposed to stay. And then eventually I went and worked for a couple of years at, um, at Phillips Fox. And then towards the end of that period of time, I was really enjoying it, but it was sort of pretty stressful as you, as you would imagine. In fact, I was probably getting over that first year stress. I think everyone goes through this sort of first couple of years of being kind of stressed out when they're, when they're learning things and but I was kind of getting over there, getting a bit more comfortable. But, and then another opportunity came up and uh, it was to go and teach at Western Sydney University. And that was to teach out at Campbelltown. Um, so I thought, look, I can go that, I can go and do that and I can come back um, when I've kind of had a bit of fun doing that. And I was also doing my PhD at the time as well. So I thought, oh, that'll give me a bit of a break and I'll do that for 18 months or two years and then I'll go back. And I just quite haven't got around to going back yet and it's been 20 years. So that's the way things turn out. Did you prefer um, like working in that academic space or that more that professional environment more in, in retrospect? It's kind of, yeah, look, I'll enjoy both. And I've since gone back and done bits and pieces of professional work because I do like it. It's just, yeah, it's, I think the thing that really always makes me come back to academia is just the freedom to pursue the things that I'm finding interesting. And of course, that's a freedom you completely lack when you're a legal professional. You just don't have the freedom to do that. You've got to fight the fights in front of you, play, you know, play what's, what's offered, and that's all dependent on the vicissitudes of life and your clients and all things like that. So that's the one thing. I, if I get up in the morning and you know, today I'm going to write about posthumous conception and sperm retrieval from dead men. That's, that's actually exactly what I've been doing in the last five days. So um, that's a lot of fun and you can't discount that. In light of that, how would you interpret imposter syndrome and what do you take it to mean? Yeah, I think you, well, you can always think about it through your personal experience. So for me, there've been lots of times when I've been in a room with other people and I've been um, doing things and I've just really questioned whether I should be there. I don't deserve, It's about dessert, I think. It's about whether you think you deserve to be in the position that you're in and whether your opinions and your expertise is, uh, and your knowledge is worth anything really in the company that you're keeping. And you feel it all the time. Like you feel it when you start, especially um, for those of you who are still studying and, but you're doing a bit of work and you're starting to meet health, uh, legal professionals. It's an immediate reaction to, to think, oh, this person knows a lot more than, than you do. And of course they do know a lot more than you do. But it doesn't mean that your opinions are not worth anything. So I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of the place in which you're situated, where you're experiencing it. And it, and it may be that in particular circumstances, it's, it's much better sitting and listening and, and not offering opinions about things. But generally speaking, I think most legal professionals are interested in um, what other people think and they want to hear views and they want to hear their views being tested. 
Um, so whilst you might not think that you have anything to offer, I think most of the times that's not true. I think you can offer something, uh, a perspective. And even if it's one that gets shot down pretty quickly, that doesn't mean that it was a waste of everyone's time. It might mean that you've just consolidated someone's thinking about something. One of the biggest, uh, scariest things I did in the early part of my career was when, towards the end of being the legal research officer, uh, the chief justice, uh, the chief judge of equity is a guy called um, Mal McClelland. He said to me, look, you've only got a, a couple months left. These are some decisions that I don't have time to draft up yet. Do you want to have a go at drafting something first up? And I caught at that, at that point, I nearly died. If I'd have been a brown dog, I would have rolled over and dropped dead. But um, I had a go. There was, so there were, I can remember the th- these three different decisions. One was on um, superannuation. The other one was about mortgages. And um, then the third one was about um, actually an intellectual property matter. That's the one I remember the best. But I, so I'd look, I spent, I spent a couple of weeks writing them up and I went through all of the things and I gave them to him. And then, um, and then I'd finish and I'd say goodbye, blah, blah, blah. And, but then about, about two months after I'd finished, I got a phone call from his associates. So look, he's going to start handing, he's going to hand down those three decisions that you drafted do you want to come in in the morning and watch them being handed down? <laughs> and so I went along and I, and I thought, oh, this is the scorecard. You know, do I get zero from three and that's it? I'm just a crap lawyer and I never really should have a job. But um, as it turned out, I got two out of three. So it wasn't too bad. They were very different at the end. They're completely different. And one was so different, like complete. That was the one I got zero on. But when I, I went in and spoke to him after and he said, look, it was, it, the superannuation one, I thought everything you said was completely wrong. <laughs> but it was it was argued in such a way that it really helped me come up with the answer so there you go and there were the two other ones he thought yeah i thought that was good and then the last one which was on the ip he thought that he sort of thought yeah i thought that was a really good um argument that you put forward there so i think the the lesson from that is even when you're getting things wrong but you're still making a contribution even if it's to be contrary and say look i think this but the other person says actually that's wrong but i'm glad you said that because now i know why uh, it's wrong. I know why my arguments are better than the way they are. So that that's happened all through my career. In fact, it, it happens most of the time. People don't agree with my positions, so I'm kind of used to being argued against. But at least, particularly when you're a, a bit further on in your academic career and you're having arguments about what public policy should be or whatever, at least you're having an effect on the debate. So at least you, you're bringing things to light and you're dragging the conversation along. So, yeah, at the beginning of your career and towards the end of the career, you're going to feel like you're not really offering much and you're always going to feel that trepidation. But go back to why you believe the things that you believe, why you believe that argument is what it is um, and has its particular strengths, because that doesn't really change. That's, that's not dependent upon your expertise or your seniority. It's dependent upon how good the argument is. I think that's definitely so important, particularly your emphasis on determination, persistence. And I think sometimes when you're stuck in that imposter syndrome kind of mindset, you can forget that. But in retrospect, you can kind of see how um, imposter syndrome or um, your experience of it kind of leads you to where you are today. Um, I think they're definitely important considerations. And they actually came up in this book I've been looking at by um, a psychologist named Dr. Valerie Young, and she ca- she's come up with five categories of imposter, um, which I'd like to canvas with you because personally I found them quite interesting to see where I fit. Um, and those five categories are a, 
a perfectionist, so someone who like has impossibly high expectations, a soloist, someone that just thinks they can do everything themselves, an expert who thinks that they need further qualifications to prove their intelligence, a superhero, so someone who's always paranoid about their flaws being exposed, and the natural genius, someone who thinks that if they're not mastering a task immediately, they're kind of just not doing a good job at all. Do you see yourself as fitting in any of those or not, and why? Oh, I reckon I've probably ticked all five off the box at some <laughs> point or another. Um, I think the the bit about the you know not getting something straight away um, that that is something that I used to really torture myself with, particularly at school, like because you'd be going, oh, I don't to actually tell someone that you didn't understand something and you needed to go over it again for me was really difficult. So yeah, I definitely uh, felt problems with that. Uh, what were some of the other ones? Tell me again, Thomas. We've got a, a perfectionist, so someone that has like really high expectations, whether they can meet them or not. A I soloist. That's, actually, I don't think I've ever really suffered from that one. Um, but the soloist one definitely, and that's a that is a big problem for people um, in academia because we kind of there is a lot of solitary work in academia. Most of the time, you are doing stuff on your own especially in the law faculty, more in other areas, like in the science faculties, they do work in teams a lot more than what we do. But yeah, that, that is a problem, thinking that you've got to do everything yourself. And there's also being an expert. And I think that's probably something as well that would come up maybe in the academic space, like someone who, like, for example, feels that they need to get like an extra degree or more qualifications to kind of prove their intelligence when they don't have to. Yeah, look, and another thing that's recently happening in academia which some of you might have been tracking, is there's a lot of metrics that are now being used to manage performance. And, um, I mean, it's interesting, and, I, and it, kind of, it, it kind of has benefits, but it also can lead to some pathology. Like, And one of the main measures is a thing called an H-index, which is a measurement of how many times you get cited by other people. So if you write an article, how many times does it get, does it get cited and referred to? And so there's, that's coming in now. It's very prevalent in other social sciences, and now it's coming into the law as well. Because it doesn't say anything about quality. Like, could be lots of people writing about you saying that you're a fool, but that you would have a very high high H index even if you did that. But what what it can do, and the negative side is that it leads to constant comparisons with yourself and other people. And I reckon it's just a really bad psychological uh, trip for you to constantly compare yourself to other people, mainly because you either get up with massive ego problems, like you think you're better than what you are. Or the reverse, you think you're doing a lot worse than what you are. One of the things you've got to learn to do is be able to live with yourself and be comfortable with what you're doing. Things like these metrics, you know, it could be billable hours, it could be a number of appeals, or it could be how many times you sat before, you know, a court and did statutory demands. Whatever it is, there's always a metric to measure how you're performing and someone's going to use it against you. But that's not who you are, even though the institutions always go towards metrics over other things. And metrics are, and I'm not saying they're not important either, they are, but they're not at some totality. They're used in the wrong ways and they can be damaging if you let them be damaging psychologically. And I was just going to bridge to that point as well, which is sort of going to be the gist of this question, which is I just wanted to sort of hear about maybe your experiences as, you know, feeling like an imposter, maybe as a student. So your time, you know, at university, how do you think, the pressures of being in like kind of a high achieving environment, such as a law school, exacerbate this sort of the syndrome, this phenomenon. 
among yeah, students. Yeah, I, I think it is really badly exacerbated. And there's some instances I've noticed, not only when I was at, at law school, but also when I've been teaching with students that just get caught up too much on their comparisons to others. Again, I used to have a, a friend of mine when I was going through law school that would used to ring me up to find out what mark I'd got. You know, well, who cares what mark another person got? It's not like that tells you how well you did. You could be not happy with them because you thought you should have done better yourself and that you could have, you know, you made a mistake here or you, but there's a whole heap of reasons why marks end up being what they are, which you don't have any control over. So it's at the end of the day, after you've been out of law school for a little time, it doesn't make any difference at all. No one cares. I've heard stories too that like in first year, people were telling each other what HSC marks they got. I mean, seriously? Like, who cares what HSC mark you got? <laughs> no one's ever asked me what HSC mark I got. I, it was, uh, I think it was 435 or something. Anyway, there you go. See, I've told you. Um, <laughs> uh, that was, that's how much of a dinosaur I am. It was out of 500. It doesn't matter, right? It obviously doesn't matter. And, you, and yes, it is competitive. And then, yes, people are looking at marks for jobs and all of that sort of stuff. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that get jobs having had good marks and it's because they're doing other things like they're doing a lot of work in in different societies or they're working at in areas of need or whatever you know there's it's not just about marks and it's it's not a good indicator of how well you're going to go in your career the next question i think we have is i just wanted to sort of question on whether you thought the ideas of experiencing imposter syndrome as a student and then as an industry professional were any different from each other like were there any noticeable differences for example, when you were at uni, as opposed to when you were maybe working at, what is it, DLA Piper, as it is referred to now, if there were any differences, what were they? And would you argue that, you know, some of them was like stronger or like, I guess, lesser, maybe just an insight into like what that looked like and if there are any sort of similarities or differences? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. I think it actually gets worse in a sense, because when you're a student, you kind of don't know, this is, I'm going to sound like Dick Cheney here, which is always dangerous, but it's, you don't know what you don't know. And so as you get a little bit more experience, you realize there's a whole areas of knowledge out there that you don't know anything about. And you start bumping into them a bit and you're going, holy crap, there's people that in this room that know, you know, have, have forgotten more after a big night on the t- on the drink than you've learned in your entire career so far. So I think there's a tendency for it to this, the, the horizon scanning of imposter syndrome gets much bigger as you get older. I, like two years ago, I had one of these experiences where I sat in a room in the Australian Law Reform Commission and we were sitting down as an expert panel and I just had no idea why I was there because I was looking around the room going, these people are the people that I read and, you know, and adored and thought that were the best ever. So, yeah, I think if anything, the scale of it gets bigger, but it's just that you, I think you, you learn to cope with what we were saying before that you, you do have something to offer. And it's okay to sit back and listen for a bit and see what the temperature of the room's like. And eventually there'll be a moment where you can offer something and that's what you do. And that's what I certainly did in that room. I was, I was just glad to be there. Um, yeah. I kind of felt like I was uh, a minor superhero getting asked inside the, uh, the X-Men or Justice League or something. I felt like going, holy crap, look at all these famous people. So, but it was good too, because um they know exactly what it's like. That's the other thing I should say. The people that you are respecting and that you're in awe of, they were in exactly the same position as you at some point. So I've been lucky to have really good mentors. I think mentoring 
um, finding good mentors is that one of the best things you can do in your career to help you with imposter syndrome because they'll be there to offer support and guidance and, and they'll tell you, you know, whether you're on the right path with something or not. And it's, yeah, I've been incredibly lucky with the mentors that I had. I guess more broadly, um, how would you describe the transition between working legally and then going into academia? Did you always find um, that, that your instinct or your intuition was more on the academic side? Or do you find that working in the legal environment required you to use a different part of your brain or a different part of your instinct as a lawyer, as a student on the inside compared to working academically? Wow. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, I think it's actually, well, first glance, without too much reflection, I think it's pretty similar, actually. It's all problem solving. And that's, especially, maybe that's a characteristic of the way that I work as an academic too, because I work at the very fine granular end of the healthcare law. So I'm talking about particular regulatory problems in particular professions. So I'm pretty much dealing with um, very tight and granular issues. And that's kind of very similar to legal practice. Some legal practitioners are dealing, uh, sorry, legal academics, dealing with the huge, big picture issues. You know, so Professor Sadesky is talking about democracy and the rule of law and free speech. And so his mind is incredibly expansive. But some of us are more granular and we take small picture stuff and we make suggestions about how to make improvements in those in a sort of more meso or micro regulatory environment so for me that's where i kind of felt my strength was that i was good at, at making adjustments to this and the smaller end and so that's very similar to legal practice so if someone comes to you with a legal problem you've got to know that particular areas of law that affect it you might need to also know about the policy areas and then you bring all of that together and then you provide them with advice about what to do and it's very similar to what you're doing in academia as well um, particularly with the problems that I'm dealing with. I think that's an important point as well to consider imposter syndrome in um, either selecting or choosing a particular field that you work in. Like I imagine um, in your example with someone working on a bigger scale kind of legal area, that might incite a, a more significant feeling of imposter syndrome, trying to make an impact in a huge field. Whereas imposter syndrome in a, in a, in a niche field is that you have to add something that increases that niche quality. So that might also impose a sense of imposter syndrome too that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, well, I think what we do, particularly with younger academics, is we try to start them on the smaller diet of smaller problems and then they work their way up. There's once in a generational scholars who will completely create new fields and blow up old ones and all that sort of stuff. So they do exist, but most of the time... Um, when you're becoming an academic, you're starting from having studied stuff at a graduate level, maybe with honours, or you've also studied stuff in a master's program, and then you've gone, I really want to dive more deeply into that. And then, and that's from that that you you do start in a sort of narrow field. We always tell that our PhD students to narrow their their topic down, so it becomes more digestible. It's like eating an elephant, you know, you've got to do it one bite at a time. Even though it's you, know, you can eat one, but it's going to take you a while. So that's what happens in academia is that it's the least now. There's no one that comes along saying, I'm going to write about democracy. Um, <laughs> okay, well, good luck. I wouldn't supervise a PhD like that. But if someone came to me and said, oh, I want to write a PhD about the regulation of cloning in mitochondrial disease, I'd go, well, great. That's doable. We can do that. 
and you can actually kind of come up with an answer and you can fix a problem and all of that sort of stuff. So that's what happens when um, you're doing PhDs and things like that. The focus, we will narrow the focus down. And then from that, you'll need to the next thing and the next thing. And after, before you know it, 10 years um, have passed, you've created a whole body of work, which then says, oh, that's what you're doing. Unless you're a bit like me and you're just jumping around all over the place. Which so, I mean, there's the benefits to that too. Um, some of us are like highly specialized and, and highly focused. They're like sort of ultimate racing machines. You know, they're really, really fine-tuned. And some of us are generalists who can write about things in different areas and, and across areas, um, kind of like, you know, the old school solicitors that would be able to practice across a whole heap of areas, whereas you've got your really high-flying tax lawyers, but you've also got your solicitors who can have a general practice and be – I think the advice these days is to highly specialize, but I never did. And a lot of the academics that I really admire, they never did either. So, yeah, it's horses for courses. I just wanted to maybe jump on the point that you referred to maybe about younger academics. Like, are you noticing anything as a trend in people who are entering academia, potentially in this generation? Anything, for example, which might be like a remarkable positive or maybe we need to like nip maybe like a problem in the bud. Are there any things that face academics and particularly those who want to be academics currently. Yeah. Um, people. So one of the positives I think is that in people, the, the quality of the academics that we're getting through now is incredibly higher. In fact, most of them have PhDs now or near completion to, to get an entry level position. My, when I started um, uh, 20, 23 years ago, there wasn't hardly anyone had a PhD. So that's a massive difference. So these people have already um, done a big chunk of work and have a body of work that they're already, already starting to publish. The other thing too is that they're they're very good at other tech qualitative and quantitative techniques that weren't being used at the time that I was doing mine. So the classic black letter law, I'm going to read all the cases, I'm going to read the statute, I'm going to come up with suggestions. That's still classic way of doing things. But there's also interviews and they do surveys and they get public opinion and they um, doing that sort of work that's that's new and I think the next generation of scholars are really good at doing that a lot of social science stuff um, in terms of bad um, I think people put a lot of pressure on themselves to try and get things out really quickly and um, they don't give themselves enough time to adjust as academics like when they start they feel like I've got to get a book out or I've got you know no, just take your time teaching I think is ten tends to be undervalued a bit and one of the problems, I think, for young academics is they feel like they can only teach in their area. Again, this is related to imposter syndrome, I think. They can only teach in the area in which they're studying. And I don't think that's right. Um, again, we've all had to do our law degree. We all should be able to teach in the Priestley 11. Um, and you should be able to teach in a range of subjects. So, um, And it's a hassle to do that. But I think it really makes you a better lawyer and a better academic in the end, too, if you can say well actually i've done corporations or i've done equity i've done you know for me in my first year at wsu i did i did foundations i did torts i did contracts i did equity i did so this is over like 18 months i did real property um i did commercial law so i basically redid my degree and the it was tough to do that but the benefit of it was that i got to see the whole picture again and now when i'm looking at problems i can say actually that's a corporations law problem and i can see it as that so I think I wish more of the, the young academics did that. They don't like doing that as a rule and they're not, um, they're not encouraged to do that by supervisors enough. It slows you down 
it does slow you down because it's hard to teach big bodies of subjects. And again, the imposter syndrome might kick in because you're in front of a classroom and you may not be an expert, you know, you know, you're not the expert in corporations law. So there's lots of reasons why it doesn't happen anymore, but I think we're losing something by doing that. So kind of redirecting this to kind of like a current events kind of thing. In light of the pandemic, in light of the situation, the social, potentially even academic situation that's been created because of COVID-19, and because of that, the incredible demand that that places on students, on professionals, and I think especially on academics as well. Do you think that has altered your understanding of being kind of like an imposter? Do you think that, for example, maybe the openness that people kind of talk about their issues with has gone in some way to maybe like almost bring the conversation to the forefront of how people are and who people are? It might have done. It, it did for me a bit. So again, just relating an anecdote about this is that I was teaching a master's course called Death Law last year. And we we pretty much had no notice to turn around courses that we used to teach face-to-face and turn them in online. And overall, the university did a spectacular job at doing that, I think. And of course, the resulting financial position of the university was a lot better than what we were expecting. But it, with by the time I got to death law, I'd already taught um, a couple of... I was supposed to be on sabbatical, but I was asked to teach a couple of master's units because a lot of our American and English cousins couldn't get over here. So I was teaching the subject and I was trying to record the lectures. And this was one of those times when you want to do a good job, but you're also under time pressure. And this is a big issue in academia and in um, legal practice. You know, so I really want to do a really good job here. And I was trying to record these lectures, but I was, I was stuffed. I was done. You know, it'd be like like the sixth week in a row where I was recording lectures over the day and then trying to get them organized and update them and that. And I was late. I ended up getting stuff in late, which is not normally what I do. And I think this, and fair enough too, there's a couple of students really pissed off that um, I wasn't getting stuff in. And it was like, uh, I just got pinched and I just couldn't, <laughs> just couldn't get it done. And I got it done eventually. And what I did was I pushed all the assessment back so that people would have enough time to listen to everything. And, and what do you do then, right? And so looking back and reflecting on that period, what should I have done better? Ideally, I should have been able to not sleep or you know, uh, put on a colostomy bag or something to let me keep working constantly and never stop. But you can't do that. You've got to be human. And you do got to sort of sometimes you got to take it on the chin, and you got to say, "Yeah, I'm really sorry. It's late. I couldn't do anything about it. Um, the lectures are done now. I've given you extra time um, so that you can listen to them and get your assignment in." And it, it, it's just one of those things, you know. And I and I was beating myself up about it. And I thought, well, I, what else could I have done? I couldn't do anything else. So that's it. Again, going back to what I was saying, at the end of the day, you got to sleep. You got to go to bed, and you got to be able to happy, be able to live with yourself, right? And not be lying awake at night thinking, "Oh, I should have done this, or I should have done that." So I couldn't have done anything better. It was wasn't great. It was the best thing I outcome I could have achieved in the circumstances. So that's the way that it was. And I'm sorry there were people pissed off about the fact that their lectures didn't come out on time, but they got extra time in the end, and I don't think anyone suffered. So that's the way it goes so and i think that's what happened for a lot of academics we tried really hard it might not have been the kind of outcome or output that we really would have been happy with but we did it people got their marks they got through the semester the next semester happened we're into the third one now under covid everything's working pretty smoothly 
it's not great. No one wants this. Everyone wants to be in a classroom, but it can't happen yet, right? Are you still currently teaching online? Yeah. So all of our lectures are online. So everything that we record lecture-wise has to be done um, online. And then um, the undergraduates have face-to-face teaching, plus some online if you want that as an option, particularly for students who are still stuck overseas. And But in terms of masters, it's all still online, which is kind of unfortunate, but I understand it's the way that it is and we just deal with it. So we've been doing a lot of Zoom classes with our master's students and touching base, and I've got another one of those in an hour. Yeah, so that's what we do, and it's not great, but it's the best we can do in the circumstances, and the machinery keeps moving. In light of everything you've just said, how would you go about recommending any solutions or strategies that you've tried to incorporate with your own experience of imposter syndrome to students of any age in the law school currently trying to overcome this phenomenon? I think um, the, the best thing you can do is to realise your limitations and work within those um, to prioritise, obviously prioritise the work, but you've got to fit it in with a whole heap of other things and then map it out and be organised. But at the end of the day, when you're in the room with people that know more than you and are smarter than you or whatever, the best thing to do is just to listen and, and watch and learn. Mentoring, I think, is a massive, massively important aspect of this and having really good mentors who can guide you and give you advice, that really helps. And throughout my career, I've been incredibly lucky. As I said, Roger Magnuson was my PhD supervisor and Professor Lowen Scheme was a great mentor for me, Professor Rosalind Croucher. She's the president of the Australian Human Rights Commission now. These are all figured very prominently. Peter Adan, who's a retired professor now at Macquarie University. Lots of really, really good mentors helped me all the time still uh i rang up ros the other day to ask for advice so that's that's really the main thing search out find good mentors and also uh, the other thing too is rely on your friendship groups speak to your mates sharing problems is halving problems i think that's something my mother used to say so being able to talk about stuff is a massive relief um and having a good friendship group is is also helpful and of course if you don't have a good friendship group one of the best places to go to start up a friendship group is souls and make contact with the people at souls because they can organize contacts and they've got mentoring programs you've got all the things we're talking about is through souls so you guys do a great job with that and then sort of talking from a sort of maybe even a sort of a systemic point of view are there any steps that the sydney law school as an institution could take in maybe formalizing a concrete approach in recognizing the nature of imposter syndrome, because it seems like a problem that can affect students and academics. And of course, those are the two most important bodies that constitute a law school anyways. Mm -hmm. So do you think that anything then can be done by the law school itself? The role of the tutor and the convener of courses is to be there to lend an ear. So don't ever think that you can't contact your convener or can't contact your tutor, whoever it is that's the face person for you and the course. So that's your first point of call. Speak to them um, about the stuff you're trying to do, struggling to understand and, and help with doing things with your assessments. That's your best place to go at the start. And then there's also academic advisors. So there's the um, Associate Dean of Professional Programs. You, again, you can speak to them. They're there for listening and advice. Um, and there's people in the law school that are quite happy to sit down and have a chat. Um, there's as I mentioned, there's the stuff that Souls is doing, which is fantastic. 
Um, and there's also, um, yeah, there's also staff members, in, especially the, the courses that you're doing, go and speak to your convener and your tutor. That's your best bet. And finally, how would you advise students who are finishing law school and they're trying to manage their transition from university life to what the future holds, whether it be in the industry or in any other avenue they take and negotiating that with possible thoughts of imposter syndrome? I think when you're, when you're uh, transitioning to work, it is a really stressful time. And it's important to remember that, that you're going through something that everyone's gone through. So you're not Robinson Crusoe. You really are someone who's, uh, people have walked this path before. So two things to do about that. You walk it with other people. So you talk to, again, go and speak to your friendship group and make sure that you're all talking about these issues and how you're coping with it. And two, within the context of your work, find a more senior person who's there to provide you with some mentoring and some guidance. And then eat more, more than one. Get as many as you can and be able to get, try to establish relationships like that. And some of the firms have this formalised, right? But even if it's not formalised, try to find, and you will find people that are there to help you and speak to them and they will help you as well. So once, you, once you're doing that, there, there is a necessary discomfort too. So we should recognise that, and I suppose we haven't said that shit, but it's actually, in a sense, part of one dimension of imposter syndrome is quite good because it keeps you humble. And being humble is is really important. Acknowledging the fact that you actually don't know stuff and that it's okay not to know stuff, that's really important as well. So those would be the three things. Get, get, have a good, strong friendship group, share your troubles, have really good, have, try to find some good mental recognize that the discomfort is a completely natural thing to be experiencing and it's never completely going to go away and that's okay well i think that brings us to the end of our questions Brent stewart thank you so much for joining us and sharing very candidly some of your thoughts we really appreciate the insight and thank you very much anytime great big respect for souls so keep up the work